everybody welcome to another episode of find your model health the official podcast for those looking to optimize their long-term health and weight goals and understand how their body really works i am your host i'm shemaine linney i'm a fitness and nutrition expert certified iridologist and integrative health practitioner i'm very happy to have you back with me for another piece of your day and today we are welcoming welcoming a returning guest today we have dr glenn livingston on Glenn is on for his third conversation with us, third time's a charm, as they say, and Glenn is always a delight to speak to. I know many of you really enjoyed the last episodes that we did discussing emotional eating and binge eating, but for those of you who don't know who Glenn is, Glenn is an author of seven books. He has millions of reviews millions of listeners and many many reviews on his book his current book which what glenn wants to discuss with us today defeat your cravings is of course going to be another big hit but he's here to tell us everything about it and trust me you're really going to enjoy this conversation so let's get into it with glenn thank you for coming back thank you for having me i'm so delighted to be here and i'm um i actually did know that it was thanksgiving because someone told me that from Canada this morning. So happy Thanksgiving and thank you for um, being willing to work on Thanksgiving. Thank you. Well, such is the life of an entrepreneur. This is (laughs) always hosting, as they say. (laughs) So Glenn, you've been on twice already to discuss different aspects, which those podcast episodes, they were so popular. We went into so much depth on emotional eating, some of your past experiences, how you work with people, overeating, but now you've kind of stepped up your game. You've brought us another book. So I'm going to let you go and tell us all about this new book, why you decided to write this new book, but what have you learned in the last year, because it's been a year since we spoke, um, in regards to emotional eating and overeating. Before I let you go, I just want to add, like, this is what we do. We help people. And I've honestly noticed that things still continue to get worse. So I'd love you to maybe mention that as well, maybe towards the end, why you think things are getting worse as well. Okay. Okay, it, it actually all fits together. So I'll be happy to talk about that at the end. Um, so I just want to make sure that if anybody is new to my work, that they understand that I'm, I'm not just a doctor that chose to work with overeaters, that I, I used to be almost 300 pounds myself and I had ridiculously high triglycerides. And, um, you know, if I got to the deli before you, they'd probably be out of chocolate and pizza when you got there. So, so a long time ago, long time ago, it's, it's been about, 16, 17 years that I've really been um, solid with my eating. Um, And long story short, the first seven books, which which the first one was exceptionally popular, um, it's largely focused on fixing your thinking about food. There's a lot of mythology in the culture that's incorrect about how to overcome overeating or just, you don't have to have a very serious eating disorder in order to make use of this information because there's nothing here that's invasive or requires you to take pills or you know commit tens of thousands of dollars and have surgery or something like that um this is just a a different way of organizing your mind so that you can eat within your own best judgment i I don't tell anybody exactly what to eat i don't uh, I'm, i'm not a dietitian or a medical doctor i'm a I'm a psychologist by training. Um, and I actually offer this as as coaching rather than treatment because I I think it's just a good set of information that that hangs together well. Yeah. Um so so the first book essentially said that rules work better than guidelines. So I'll only ever have chocolate on a week on a weekend again, mm-hmm. and I'll never have it on a weekday is better because it makes your chocolate decisions for you over the course of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say, well, I'll just try to avoid chocolate 90% of the time and eat it 10% of the time, it's a good idea in theory, but it doesn't give you any very specific guidance about um, how to make your chocolate decisions. So every time you don't know which is the 90%, which is the 10%. So every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, you're making another decision, wearing down your willpower, and people just do not do well. Then you combine that with the 
perfect storm of you know, hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat, excitotoxins and salt that live in these bags and boxes and containers and get all those, you know, fat cats and white mustaches and uh, laughing all the way to the bank. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, weakened willpower with stronger stimulus just makes it very, very difficult to resist. Um, and so I would have people draw these very clear lines. This is how I got better. Um, I would tell them to then organize their thoughts into those thoughts that suggested they would break the line, they would cross the line on those thoughts which suggested that they would stick to it. I happened to have called, I wasn't going to teach this, this is just how I recovered. So I called every thought that suggested that I would break the line, my inner pig, my inner pig was squealing. So if it's, if it said, you know, hey, you can start your silly diet tomorrow you worked out hard enough, a little bit of chocolate isn't gonna kill you, um, go ahead and do it. I say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. This is very embarrassing every time I tell it still. Um, you don't have to call it that. You can call it your food monster, your food devil, whatever you wanna call it. But um, the point was that I had a an analogy that made me kind of angry about this thing inside me that seemed to be taking over and making me eat beyond my own best judgment. Because if I, if I made a rule that said, I'm not going to have chocolate during the week, I did it for a good reason. Like when I was of sound mind and body, I had the intellect and fortitude to sit down and write down what I thought would be best for me. So I was really getting mad that I was throwing it out the window, you know, just at a, in a moment of impulse. And then of course, it was never just a couple of bites of chocolate. It was a couple of bars of chocolate and a couple of muffins and a couple of lattes and mm -hmm. maybe two whole pizzas. That's, that's the way I rolled. Yeah. Um, <laughs> go big or go home. <laughs> <laughs> go big or go home, right. So it took me a while on my own to get better, looking at what was wrong with what the pig was saying. Um, and I did it by, I, I did it with a cognitive refutation. Mm -hmm. So if the pig said it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, I would say, no, it won't, because the way the brain works, the principle of neuroplasticity says that if you have the thought, start again tomorrow, and then you have some chocolate, you will have reinforced that thought and the craving. So you'll be more likely to have a, a stronger craving tomorrow for chocolate, and you'll be more long, likely to have the thought. So if you're in a hole, you got to stop digging, always use the present moment to be healthy. That's an example of what I would call a cognitive refutation there were these irrational thoughts that would justify the indulgence and I would refute them. Over the course of many years, I got a lot better by writing in my journal about it. Now, once I published the book and it got popular, I started running these coaching programs because I couldn't, I couldn't do it all by myself. I wound up hiring a bunch of coaches and we've worked with over 2000 people over the course of that time. Mm -hmm. um, the first five years or so of that experience, involved making the whole process faster so I could fix your thinking faster. And so now, you know, as we were ending that phase, as I kind of ended my work with my ex-partner and, and um, we're ending that phase of the work, um, when people would come in 30 days later, they had a 90% reduction in their overeating episodes. Mm -hmm. And then if they stayed with the tool that tended to hold up, you know, somewhere around 70, 80%, if they didn't stay with the tool, then it, it reversed reverse itself. But it was still largely about fixing your thinking. Um, now, here's the problem that I ran into with that. Um, it worked. Um, it worked really well. But people were still vulnerable to what I call the screw it, just do it response. There, there would be these moments in time where it didn't matter how much you worked on those cognitive refutations, how strong your thinking was about food, how much you really knew what was a rational way to go about this. Um, at some point in time, people would, would be in front of that chocolate bar and they'd hear this little voice that says, oh, just screw it, you know, screw it, just do it. At first I tried to refute that voice cognitively and that helped some. So we would say, I don't care that you don't care, Mr. Pig, because I care very much. So we would separate from that voice and that gave people some control back. But nevertheless, I'm getting all these reports of people having what I call conscious pig parties. They said, I knew it was wrong. I knew why it was wrong. I knew that I didn't have any justification, but screw it. I just want to do it. Mm 
And I said, what is driving that response? Um, the next few years, I paid careful attention to that, particularly the last year. Very careful attention, did a lot of studying. And what I've discovered is it really has to do with a sense of organismic distress. We don't, we don't live in the way that we used to live. We're not supposed to spend our lives staring at screens, hoping electrons flow into our bank account. Um, you know, we're supposed to spend a lot more time outside, right? Yeah. Um, we, we've been drawn away from like natural whole foods towards, you know, processed packaged goods, which target the bliss points in our reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. So we're having a lot of calories, but not necessarily a lot of nutrition. That causes or organismic distress. Um, we don't sleep enough. We don't get enough water. We have way, way too much input. We're making way too many decisions all day long. I just told you that that wears down your willpower. Mm -hmm. um, we don't give ourselves permission to take breaks. We will take a break to go get a chocolate bar and a coffee. We won't take a break just to go take a break. Or to go and, walk, yeah. Or, or just to go for a walk or, you know, go hug your husband or, or you know, cuddle with your dog or go laugh with your kid or something like that. We, we, don't, we don't do that. So we're giving ourselves permission to relieve the organismic distress with a chocolate bar and a coffee or, a, you know, a, a muffin and a bag of chips or all the things that people, people run to. Um, and so I discovered that, first of all, it was really necessary to focus on people's regular nutrition. I am um, mo most people that I would work with were caught up in a, what I'd call the feast and famine cycle. Like most overeaters are also really good dieters. And so they're used to compensatory behavior that they'll fast for three days or they'll have one meal a day for a while or, or they'll eat nothing but fruit or, um, and what, it seems to me that what that tells the brain, this is after working with thousands of people, my hypothesis is that what that tells the brain is you live in a feast and famine environment. And in primitive times when we developed all of this architecture, if food was often very scarce, the moment it becomes available, there must be a very strong um, sympathetic nervous system response, like primitive brain nervous system response, survival response that says, you can't afford to be discriminating with food now. You need to take what calories are available. I think that's what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's also what's going on when people don't get enough sleep and there's too much input. It's like, oh my God, there's too much for this brain to do. There's too much for this body to do. We need more resources. You can't afford to be that discriminating. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, our dopaminergic systems, the system that give us pleasure from the brain are um, blunted and, and thwarted by all of the industrial food. And so we don't have the same pleasure response that we're supposed to have to whole natural foods. As a consequence, people are not getting the level of pleasure that they're supposed to get. They're not getting the level of authentic pleasure that they're supposed to get. And they don't think that the things that really should be pleasurable are pleasurable enough. So, so you kind of have to start talking to people, not only about you know, like, you know, for me, I would have a craving for a chocolate bar because chocolate and then pizza were my things. I'd have a craving for this chocolate bar. And then I would go to go get a kale banana smoothie or a celery banana smoothie. And it wouldn't get me high with food the same way that chocolate would get me high with food but it would kind of scratch the itch and I didn't feel that organismic distress anymore. So there wasn't this part of me that said, screw it, just do it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I started asking people to, this is only recently, keep a list of things that do give them authentic pleasure. You know, so for me, it's like a, a bunch of movies that I know are going to make me laugh every time I see it. Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles. You like, watched that the other day on... Which one? Every night we watched Young Frankenstein. Oh my God, is that the funniest? Just walk this way. <laughs> He's like, no, Charles Wade. But the last weekend, the weekend before, if you haven't seen it, we watched Haunted Honeymoon, another Jimmy Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. My little boy who's 10, like, loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so 
I mean, you need those moments in your day. The laughter, um, yeah. Yeah. I would have them pay more careful attention to regular, reliable nutrition. Mm -hmm. So I would tell people it would be better not to engage in fasting or intermittent fasting in the first six months that you're trying to defeat your cravings. Mm -hmm. You know, you can think of that as phase two, but while you're getting these quote unquote uncontrollable cravings out of your system and you're learning how to, how to work with that, it's, it's better if you just have regular reliable meals day in and day out for six months. So you're telling your body and your brain that you don't live in a feast and famine environment. Um, we would start so to focus else, on- What else do you have on your list? So you have your funny movies and- I, I, I have a long list of a, a long, um, I have a folder with all my hiking pictures in them. Yeah. Uh, all the adventures that I've had. I have some of my favorite pictures of my sister's kids um, when they were little and some kind of funny moments that we had together. Um, I have some letters that I've written that meant a lot to me, writing to my my dad and my mom and mm -hmm. you know before they before they passed away. Uh, th things like that. I've got a long list of um things that will make me happy. For me, it's also, you know, I I um I don't know if you could see here. I live on the beach. Oh wow. So way to make I, us jealous in Alberta where we're landlocked. <laughs> well, well, I, I also live in a 650 square foot apartment so that I can live on the beach. Um, <laughs> so, so don't be too jealous, but, and, and um, but I have to remember to go do that because I, I can get caught up in the rat race also, you mm -hmm. know, where I won't give myself that break. Um, I'll jump in the pool. I go to yoga. <laughs> I go to these cardio classes. Um, sometimes I'll just take a nap and sometimes it's just 10 minutes. Sometimes I don't have time for, but I'll just take a little cat nap for 10 minutes and it, it, um, it makes a world of difference. Mm. So, so there's a lot more focus on what might seem cliche, but I really, I think I understand why it works now. It's, there's a lot more focus on self-care. It's like, you can't, you can't use these thinking tools to brute force your way through life and get even more caught up in the rat race and expect that, that you're going to be able to control yourself all the time because your brain is set up to allow only a certain amount of organismic distress before it pushes your rational brain aside. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the good news and the bad news is over, overeating is actually a symptom of lack of self-care in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been focusing more on helping people to do that. And that's been extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. And do you want to ask more questions about that? Because I can go into some other things that we learned. Well, oh, back to the lack of self-care. It's, I I agree. And I also think it's the lack of happiness as well. They're tr we're trying to fake happiness. What you were saying about the rat race, I get caught up in it so much but then I'll just feel so overwhelmed, like I can almost not breathe and I'll snap at everyone around me until, and then I, I do have to talk to myself, like you said, and I have to say, Shemaine, just stop, like stop, take a break. It's not gonna be the end of the world. But when I'm put in that position, I can very easily go towards like 20 chocolate bars. Chocolate is my vice. Or I just keep working and then I skip food. And then when I do eat, the cravings go through the roof because like you said, that survival mode kicks in. And sometimes I, as good as I am at what I do, there's days where it doesn't matter how good you are. You, you can't stop. It's just yeah. survival's going to win and you're going to lose. I, a way to really get that through to people is to say, you know, there are some rules that you can't make because your body will force you otherwise. For example, you couldn't make a rule that says, I will only ever pee on the weekends. I, I will never I will never pee, pee during a weekday because your body's going to experience distress pretty quickly and it's going to force you to do otherwise. It's it's kind of like that, except it's um, more having to do with your rational thinking and the the rest of your, of your self-care. Yeah, yeah. sympathetic response even because we are so stressed and as I say, running around like lunatics now that that sympathetic stress is so much more heightened than it was 10 years ago. Like I really see people struggling a lot. Well, I, I mean, if you compare the television shows from the 80s with the television shows today or the things that are streaming today, there's something like 
three times as many scenes per hour. Mm. So we're, they're constantly changing and inputting and, and, and there's so many more choices that we have. And, you know, we're scrolling on, we're doom scrolling on the news where we're scrolling on Facebook, we're scrolling on TikTok. And, um, you know, it's too much. It's, it's just too much for the brain. It's just something's got to give. Yeah. And, and yeah. And yeah. sugar is so enticing that chances are that's going to win. Well, because it seems like a lot of resources, you know, thinking burns glucose. Mm -hmm. When you have to think and make decisions and process all that input, you're actually burning a little bit, bit of glucose. And so your brain says, give me glucose. We need more glucose now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we run out of that and we want the sugar. So just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Yeah. And, and I've said that to my clients. I think I said it to you before. You can get to a stage where you don't even realize what you're doing. And by the time you kind of snap out of it, you've already at two chocolate bars. Like you almost go into a trance. I've seen this happen to people. The, the brain is a calorie acquisition machine. And one of its major goals is to automate the acquisition of calories. And so it wants to create these automatic loops that you're almost not aware of. So when you teach it that I see this particular package, I forget about everything else, I run over there, I open it and I, I wolf it down, um, it, it has an incentive to automate things. See, 100,000 years ago, it was very difficult to find sustenance. Mm -hmm. And so, so if you saw something in the environment, like maybe you saw a chimpanzee that led you to a banana tree, and then you could wolf down a bunch of banana trees, you would become automatically excited by seeing chimpanzees. And there would be this automatic pleasurable experience of pursuing chimpanzees to go find a banana tree. Um, by the way, I don't, I don't think we had eating disorders 100,000 years ago. I, I don't think Thag was sitting around and going, Oi, Marta, eat too much mammoth. Yeah, <laughs> probably <laughs> not. But also the foods were a lot different. They had, I think they hadn't altered our chemistry at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. So back to, I want to just go back to the self-care a bit, because I think that's really important. Um, one rule we have in my house, just to let you know, is we don't watch horror films or anything that's going to spike adrenaline. It's always going to be something that's funny and we can joke about. And I encourage that with my clients, even though I know a lot of them are suckers for the horrors. Um, like my sister, for example, just will only watch horror films. And her stress is through the roof. And I'm like, you need to stop. Like the easiest thing to do to turn off the stress response for most people is to laugh or sing their favorite song. So I do believe watching all these scary and thrillers and murder documentaries are kind of causing us a lot of damage. But self-care is, um, it's almost so cliche right now when you hear people talk about self-care because it gets thrown around social media so much. But it really is, lacking still even though we're told self-care self people still are not doing it because they women especially they do feel guilty there's always something else that needs to be done before you take care of yourself always well so so part of what i tell people now is that we need to pry apart the space between stimulus and response the brain is trying to push it together all the time the advertising industry is trying to push it together all the time and take advantage of that audit automaticity, but we need to pry it apart. It could be something as simple as before you eat anything, just go one, two, three. Mm. Before that, that's that's one of the easiest, simplest interventions. Before you eat anything, go one, two, three. If you want to take it a step further, you could breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of eleven, because that tells your nervous system that there is no emergency. If you if there was a hungry bear chasing you, you couldn't breathe in for longer than breathe out for longer than you're breathing in. You'd be going. <laughs> and so it takes you into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is a system that says it's okay to rest and digest and think and strategize. You don't have to do anything urgency urgently right now. We have everything we need right now. Yeah. See that that's something that can turn off the screw it, just do it response. Yeah. Uh, and then you keep trying to work on prying that space apart. You could um, 
once you're able to pause for three seconds. And this is going to feel annoying at first. It doesn't feel natural. Okay. But once you're able to pause consistently for three seconds, you could say, I have everything I need right now. Mm. I have everything I need right now. Um, or maybe you could grab um, whatever part of you has a little bit extra and you could say, let it burn, baby. <laughs> <laughs> or or wh whatever you need to do to stop yourself, yeah. to calm yourself and, and, and slow down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you I think you do agree because you've kind of alluded to it already that the way some society is constructed nowadays, the odds are stacked against us in regards to everything. But the self-care, like, oh, you don't have enough time for self-care because there's 20 other things that needs to be on. Obviously, the food industry, uh, we could even go into like the whole social media aspect. Like I almost feel society is being molded now to work against us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and your inner pig will tell you that you can't afford the time for self-care. The truth is you can't afford the time not to do it. Because we've done reader surveys and I've asked people, how long does it take to, to overcome an overeating episode? And it's at least 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So it's really sapping people's productivity. It makes them cranky with their kids and their mates and their, you know, their parents and their, their work. Um, and they, they sit and you know they're sweating bloated on the couch rather than engaging in life and pursuing their goals so i actually think that doing this is something that puts time into your life it's not something that takes it out of it but when you're caught up in it it feels like there's just no there's just no alternative you're not going to win yeah you really feel it feels like, like you're not going to win yeah. yeah or how much longer is this going to take before i'm i've overcome this and it's just a constant battle for a lot of people, which in itself is disheartening. Like you can see why people are struggling so much. Yeah. And, you know, like it's just chit chatting here, but it, it's it's just constantly getting worse all the time. Like the new research that's came out showing that over 85 percent of people have metabolic issues. So, 80% of people are on some sort of sleep or antidepressant medication. It just keeps compounding all the time. And I think you're right. We need to stop and go back to the beach, go back to nature and stop, just stop the whole lot. Well, and, and people think a pill or a surgery is what's going to fix it. And I, I can't override anybody's doctor. Cause like I say, I'm not a, I'm not a medical professional. Um, but, you know, we get these pills that come out and now, I think Ozempic is supposed to. Yeah, I was going to ask your opinion on Ozempic, semaglutide, huge here, like big deal here. I, I mean, we have an epidemic of diabetes and diet reversible problems. And and it might be that they're doing more good than harm. But I was reading about, you know, some gastric paralysis and other side effects that are oh, starting to yeah. come out. Come out and, and, um, so, and when you take that, you're kind of telling your inner your inner pig that it's stronger than you and that you need you need this chemical you intervention need extra help yeah so i always tell people listen to what your doctor says um but let's see what we can do cognitively let's see what we can do with these um interventions of authentic pleasure first and um not necessarily first but at least at the same time we will see see because what happens if you can't keep taking the the medication well, you know, I hadn't considered it like that, actually. And I've done a lot of talks on this with my clients. And I, I get the side effects, the pros, the cons and all. But I hadn't considered what you just said there, that by kind of throwing in the towel and saying, OK, I can't do this by myself. I need this extra help. At that stage, you're pretty much giving up and claiming weakness, which yeah. not only affects that aspect of your life, but I wonder, and you're the psychologist, would that then affect the other areas of your life where yeah, you can... It's, it's an illusion of powerlessness. It's a devil made me do it approach to life. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm. you're kind of abdicating your free will and responsibility and saying that you you can't control yourself. Now, now I want to say that it really does feel like that when you're in the throes of it. It, it feels like, you know, you fought a war with a bagel and you lost, mm. right? It, it really feels like the food is calling to you. Um, but if you if you step back and you make one simple rule, and most people make the mistake of trying to set the bar way too high when they're starting, but if you start really small, 
you know, I'll always put my fork down between bites. Um, or I'll take a picture of my food before I eat it, right? Or I'll never go back for seconds. If you make one rule that effectively divides your thoughts into two parts, the ones that say you're going to keep it and the one that says you're going to break it, mm -hmm. you'll suddenly have an awareness of when that sympathetic nervous system is becoming active and generating those thoughts that suggest that you break the rule. So you're going to find that you wake up at the moment of impulse more so than you did before. You're interfering with that automatic loop. And then you do some of the things that we talked about. If you take a breath or you go one, two, three, or you ask, why does your pig want you to eat this? What's it actually saying? And why is it wrong? You'll find that you have a degree of control that you didn't think that you have. And just that modicum of control and then observing yourself clearing this very low bar consistently mm -hmm. um, before you try to you know, lose all your weight or, or attack this more aggressively. Um, that kicks in your identity function. If you observe yourself clearing a really low bar, even when you don't have your mojo, even when you don't feel like it, you know. You're just, already winning at that stage. You're, you're already winning. And that has a piercing impact on the illusion of powerlessness. It, it'll, it gives you a little bit of hope. Mm -hmm. And I find that the way that society is set up today, so many people feel hopeless about ever really controlling themselves. And so these, um, you know, there are treatment philosophies that suggest that you accept powerlessness. And then there are medical philosophies that suggest that you accept powerlessness. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a sexy concept to promote. It's just wrong. But it's sexy to promote because it absolves you of any sense of, sense of guilt or shame. You know, it's not me. I've got this disease. There's something wrong with me. I can't control myself. Um, but for that little bit of pain relief, you're you're giving up so much. Mm -hmm. And now you believe that you really have to be frightened of your body and that you should cultivate fear rather than confidence when it comes to your bodily impulses. And that's um, that's not how society functioned for, you know, thousands of years. We were really based upon the principles of free will and responsibility. Um, it's not what I've observed to work. I don't think that there's evidence that that, that that really works. Maybe there is evidence that people can lose the weight and reverse diabetes and things with some of these medications, at least in the short term now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I don't, I'm concerned that my opinion about all this and how you're telling your inner pig that you're powerless, I'm concerned that that could cause someone to you know, not to want want to cooperate with their doctor if they're in an urgent situation. So by all means, I think that you need to listen to your doctor if you're in an urgent situation. But I think um, but there I, is that ripple effect, um, not to put words in your mouth, like that concern of like, okay, well, your body's not your own anymore. Right. But that ripple effect, does that, your mind is not your own, your emotions, not, is your spirit not your own? Because you're just, you're giving up on everything like it at this stage. I know there are different circumstances where it's required and we don't have the long-term studies to know what is the effect of this for someone who has taken it for 40 or 50 years, because that's the big picture that a lot of people don't get. If you start on this, if you want to keep the results, you got to stay in it for the rest of your life. So we don't know right. what, and God can only imagine what it, going to look like for people on 40 years of these drugs yeah. um, but I think the the what you had mentioned is that consideration like is there a ripple effect I think there is I think there is a ripple effect yeah I, I, I think that people that believe that they are powerless over food or drugs or alcohol they start to believe they're powerless over other things and that they you know, that there are programs where you have to report into a sponsor every day because you're kind of like a dependent little child and you can't control yourself. Um, it, it's it's a low view of humanity mm. to, to say we can't control our impulses and it's a depressing way to live. And it, it always leaves this dark cloud hanging over you that I might go off the rails tomorrow. There's this mysterious force inside of me. If I skip a pill, um, if I'm exposed to you know, the wrong stimulus, if I'm at a party, if something, you know, you, you feel like you're going to go off the rails at any point. And it, it's a depressing way to live, yeah. as opposed to 
claiming your birthright of self-control and self-discipline and seizing the day because you can confidently go through it. That's that's what I think. So I think, yes, there is a ripple effect. Yeah. We're, and before we move on, just as you're speaking there, it just dawned on me, like, just we're not saying don't do it or do do it. We're just helping people understand the different variables and potential consequences. But another consequence, which maybe nobody has considered yet, is like you mentioned, if you give in to this and that's acceptable, what else is acceptable? Um, abusive relationships, is that acceptable? You're too weak. Oh, you can't turn up to work because it's too difficult because now we're used to being easier on ourselves. But when we, I mentioned 85% of people have metabolic issues. So let's say a big chunk of society starts taking these weight loss drugs and now it alters everyone's way of thinking. And now the ripple effect is rippling into society and we're altering society. And it maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but I if we got a big enough number of people taking these and their mental health starts to change, like we mentioned, how is that going to influence everything like there's a lot to be considered we could keep going and going but it's not just oh i'm losing weight and there might be some side effects so here's an alternate way to approach it um if you had a broken leg you wouldn't feel bad about using crutches for three months or four months while you were rehabilitating yourself Um, however you wouldn't say i'm just going to use these crutches the rest of my life Mm -hmm. right i i think with your doctor's permission if you think of it as a as a crutch um, that it's it's a tool to help you rehabilitate yourself if you use it while you are learning to fix your thinking and fix your life in such a way that you don't experience this organismic distress as much and you're able to stick to your plans um, then I think it could be a useful tool and there's a place for it mm-hmm. uh, but, but to to say I'm going to manage my wait for the rest of my life by taking pills or you know some of these treatment programs that say you have to have a sponsor for the rest of your life i i think it's a mistake yeah i think it's it's weakening us as a as a species i do okay um i would agree so let's move on with the nutrition aspect uh which is your step two I think let's start with firstly what you had mentioned about, because I agree and I do this with my clients and followers, the fasting one meal a day, obviously super popular now, but I kind of am starting to think along with the ketogenic advice, we've done more harm than good with these practices when people are not teaching them how to do it properly or people are just Googling everything and they're, I'm just not going to eat for a certain amount of time, not considering that ripple effect. I I um I can tell you what I've seen in the two thousand people that we work with. I, I haven't done a double blind um, scientific, you know, peer reviewed journal study at a third party independent hospital, but I've worked with a lot of people. And I, I our program is diet agnostic, so we tell people we'll help them in any diet that they want to within reason. Mm-hmm. What I've seen though, is that we get about twice the results for people who have more moderate dietary philosophies than people have the, that have the extreme philosophies. So people try to go ultra low carb or just eat meat, um, you know, and they they never seem to stick. Mm-hmm. We're not, not nearly as much as the other people. Some people make it work and we'll work with them, but, but it's harder for them to stick. People who have one meal a day, especially in the first six months or so, they, they seem to lose it two or three times as much as the people who eat regular regularly reliable reliably three meals a day um people i i used to try to be a raw vegan i was able to do it for a couple of years using this philosophy um i in theory believe it might be the healthiest way to eat but in practice i'm too hungry and it's too difficult to fit into society and i i also said to myself you know i'm, I'm 60 years old now we're almost 60 years old and None of my buddies are eating like that. So do I really want to live to 120 and they're all going to croak it, you know, 90 or 95? I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think I want to be alone by myself eating a big bowl of bananas yeah. um, when I'm 120. It's, so I, I've kind of adjusted to a more cooked whole foods, plant-based diet. Um, I wish people would kind of drop when it comes to overcoming overeating. I think the first goal is not to really make the 
whole foods plant-based argument or the carnivore argument. I, I think it's to get over the extreme diets. Um, th there was a meta-analysis with 34 studies, I think, that showed a 25% increase in all-cause mortality for people that are skipping breakfast. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily as healthy as you, as you think that it is. Um, what I can tell you for sure is that people who skip breakfast are much more likely to overeat at night. That's, that's what I can tell you for sure. I've seen that over and over and over again. Um, yeah, so I, I think um, if people move towards more whole foods, whether it be animal-based or plant-based um, and more regular eating, then it's much easier to overcome overeating. That's what I think, yeah. at, le at least in the first six months. Yeah, the meta-analysis, I think I know the one you're speaking of, and I think the outcomes were because when we have the cortisol or the dawn awaking response in the morning, we're already so stressed that when people were pushing that stress even more, not eating breakfast, then they were getting into a lot of metabolic issues at that stage. Oh. So one of the practices, if you have someone that is very wired, very like strung out on stress, adrenal dysfunction, one of our practices as nutritionists is to get them eating as early in the morning as possible. So I'll usually, I like to give them maybe a two hour window from when they woke because you still want the dawn effect. You still want the natural spike of cortisol, but then you want to start bringing it down naturally. Too many people mess up with these natural circadian rhythms. So I will wait an hour, two hours, then they'll have breakfast and then, but if someone is highly stressed and they're getting up at 6 a.m., you don't want them having their first meal at noon. You're asking for trouble at that stage. So you give them a two-hour window. That's good to know. Yeah, because That's usually my all of my clients start with a morning routine. So they have some sort of routine that they need to do and they're getting themselves ready for the day. And again, you want that spike of cortisol. You do want that when people start taking like ashwagandha first thing in the morning because they've been recommended by something else. It's always very confusing to me for them. Like, why are we trying to push down this natural cortisol response? We need it high, like back with Tog and whoever back in ancestral times, they <laughs> always had, that's what got us up and out the cave. We always had that spike of cortisol. We need it high, but you have to, it has to be in context because when it is high, you're also, your fat burning rate is a lot higher at that stage as well. But your fat storage potential is also high if you're not kind of playing the game, right? And it almost is a game at this stage. But yeah, that that, was that's, that's really helpful. I, I would love to take that clip and put that on my website if I could. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, so it yeah. was back again, it was a stress response and cardiovascular. And I had shared with one of my groups last week that um, over 50% of women in first world countries, highly developed countries die of cardiovascular metabolic diseases that were preventable because we're so stressed. And then, like you said, we skip breakfast. The stress gets even worse. We have to exercise because we feel obligated to do it. Now the stress is even worse. And then we binge on candy and chocolate and popcorn in the evening. So then we compound the triglycerides that you mentioned. We've got the arterial plaque. We've got the inflammation of the blood and women are dropping dead, but we're supposed to be first world countries. We're supposed to have the best medical systems but it's not happening like that. And that, that's right. to what I was saying. I think as much as I use fasting as a tool with my clients, it has to be in context because I think it does a lot more damage than good if you just think, oh, I'm just going to starve myself. But fasting is just another name for starvation if you don't do it properly. That's so interesting. Okay, well, that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> I, yeah, don't, I, I just do this a lot and I see the problems. I have a lot of women that have issues with eating and they will say to me, like I very am hands-on with my clients. I think that's the only way people can be successful. You have to be very hands-on, like you have to support people and they might message me and say, well, I've been doing this feeding window and I'll say, well, how are you sleeping, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll say, okay, that's fine. Or no, you need to start eating earlier. Or they'll say, you know, I'm not too hungry for dinner. Can I skip dinner? And immediately I'm thinking of the potential outcomes if they do that. What's the problem? Not only this evening, 
also tomorrow, because that's going to impact tomorrow. What you eat today impacts what you eat tomorrow. So then we'll have a conversation. I'll say, okay, well, it looks like your first two meals were great. They were highly nutritious. We're giving your body what it needs. I'm okay if you're not too hungry. You can skip dinner, but can you please have a cup of bone broth or, or something to make sure we're getting those nutrients and your body doesn't go, oh shit, now we're starving again. So there's, yeah. there's a lot to be considered. Yeah. That's the response I'm trying to prevent, the, the oh shit response. Yeah, That's it. it's heartbreaking. Do I have time to talk about a couple of other things that we've learned or do we need to wind down? No, no, go for it. We've got another few minutes. Okay. So the other thing that's new in the last couple of years is we studied the science of cravings. And there are a few insights that really helped us to help people overcome them. The first one was to remember that cravings are actually a sign of a healthy brain, not, not a sick brain. If we didn't have cravings 100,000 years ago, then we wouldn't be motivated to follow that chimpanzee to get the, the food. We could have starved. Mm -hmm. And so it was a survival advantage. People with stronger cravings were more likely to survive. Um, people who could eat more all at once, were probably more likely to survive because food was scarce and they had to you know, take it in and store it as fat if they could. Um, so that's kind of interesting when you're trying to combat the illusion of powerlessness or because the illusion of powerlessness goes along with the idea that there's something wrong with me. The second thing is that the same mechanism that's responsible for forming cravings is responsible for extinguishing them. So it doesn't make any sense to say that you're broken or powerless, because if you can get a craving, you can extinguish it. It's, it's mm -hmm. the same learning mechanism. Um, the third thing is that when you go to extinguish cravings, cravings always occur in response to a stimulus. It could be a food stimulus. It could be the donut store sign. It could be you know the smell of your grandmother's muffins when you go to her house. Mm -hmm. It could be a physical place like the beach or, you know, the feel of the hot sun in your face making you want ice cream. Yeah, it could also. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, I was just going to say that you even have the memories of a kid having the ice cream and laughing and having fun and that you get those reminders. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, yes, and it can be internal. It could be, an, it could be a memory. It could be when you get too cold could be when you get too hot. Um, but there, there's a stimulus reward pattern that, that occurs. Um, that's helpful because when you're thinking about the trouble that you're having, you can say overeating is not a unitary habit. It's a collection of stimulus reward problems. So you can make a list of stimuli that are, let's say I'm struggling with chocolate, when do I struggle with chocolate? What are the stimuli? I know I know it's when I pass Starbucks after I work out, but is it also at my dad's poker game? Is it, um, you know, is it at home after I've had a very long day and I don't have energy at the end of the day? What, when is it that I struggle with that? And then you can make a plan to ask yourself, what is my inner pig saying specifically to justify it at those times? What rules should I follow knowing that these are the struggles that I have? Like, what role do I really want chocolate to play in my life? Is it okay that I have a bar at the Starbucks, you know, once a week? But where's the boundary? Where's the boundary? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then when you've decided to extinguish a craving, which you can decide as craving stimulus pair, let's say I want to get free of the Starbucks chocolate craving. And I'll say, I'm just never going to have chocolate at a Starbucks again. Well, what will happen is you'd think that, and this is what I used to think, that the cravings would be worse at the beginning, and then it would just go down in a straight line, kind of like the side of a mountain. Mm -hmm. But that's not really what happens. What happens is the cravings get better at the beginning. They kind of go, they go down for a little bit. And then somewhere around seven days, there's a big spike for a daily habit. Sometimes there's a big spike around that. We call that an extinction burst. And then it starts to go down slowly. And somewhere in like 21 to 30 days, there are a couple of little bursts. That's important to know. Because if you're not expecting that, you think, oh, I was doing well, but I can't take this. When, when you get the extinction burst, 
what's happening there is your brain is having a temper tantrum. If you th think back to when um, Thag followed chimpanzees to the banana trees, um, that was a reliable way to acquire calories and nutrition. So the brain was really happy and it was busy automating that. Um, and then all of a sudden it lost that reliable way. So it wants to see if maybe those banana trees have become intermittently available. Because maybe as the season goes on, some of them dry down and then some, some of them aren't. So maybe Thad could still find banana trees if it followed a chimp, just not as frequently. That would be much more valuable than not being able to find them at all. Mm -hmm. So the brain, the brain has a temper tantrum and says, we better double down on our efforts to find those bananas. We better double down every time we see this Starbucks sign, the food stimuli, on our efforts to go get that chocolate. So you're actually going to crave it even more. You're going to think there's something wrong with you and your pig will say, you're going to be tortured forever if you keep trying to, to get rid of this. Um, you obviously can't do this. A lot of people crap out when they get the extinction burst. But if you know you just have to ride that through, you don't have to do anything about it, and then it's going to start going down and you'll have a couple of little bumps, then you're prepared to go all the way to the end. Now, what happens at the end is not that the craving is erased from your brain. We don't, we don't, I mean, other than in, you know, cognitive decline, we, we don't erase our learning. The brain holds on to learning. What happens is it's labeled dormant. The brain wants to conserve energy. And so it, it wouldn't make sense for Thag to keep chasing banana trees if the banana trees never yielded bananas. He couldn't keep chasing monkeys. It doesn't make sense if for you to keep chasing Starbucks if every time you went into a Starbucks, they were out of chocolate, right? So um, we, we've, we've learned that once something's labeled dormant, you don't want to wake it up again. You want to go all the way through the extinction curve. You can get through the extinction curve with using what we call a conditional rule if you want to instead. Maybe I only ever have Starbucks on Saturday morning after my workout. Well, what, what's happening there is you've created a kind of complex stimuli group Starbucks, Saturday morning after the workout. Those are the signals that, that suggest that chocolate will be available. Your brain will learn that eventually, and it will stop craving the chocolate at all the other times um, where those three things aren't the case. Um, so, so what you don't want to do is intermittently reward the craving. You don't want to randomly reward the craving. That's the worst thing you could do. It's kind of like you want to have some sort of structure to it, like a game plan, so that your brain can learn when when to crave it and when not to. Otherwise, you're creating a kind of a slot machine that may pay off at any time, uh, and it's um it's called a variable ratio intermittent reinforcement, which basically means you know those people get stuck at the slot machines and they can't leave because it's going to pay off next time they just know it's going to pay off next time it's it's about the most addicting thing you could do yeah so so if you're really struggling with a substance create a structure eat by design um don't don't go around rewarding it randomly and and you should be okay after some time um yeah i was going to say that because i abstinence of course would be ideal but most people are not going to do that in a sense they don't want to do it they would like to be able to enjoy their treat once in a while for that sustainability so having that game plan or a rule around it can make the the your positioning easier for sustainability yes and i, I find that two out of three people are able to do that and it varies from substance to substance. Mm -hmm. Some people can do it with flour, but not with sugar. Some people can do it with chocolate, but not with cheese. Um, so it's really very individual and you have to experiment to see if it's possible for you or not. Mine would be chocolate. Be, and I'm just kind of giving it for myself. We spoke about my weight loss before and I could give up chocolate. But I don't want to. I don't want mm -hmm. to. I want to be able to enjoy it sometimes. I want to be able to like go to a movie and have my bar of chocolate. So in order for that, I have to have a rule. And also I, I have to earn it as well. I can't just willy-nilly 
have whatever I want. There has to be that balance. There has to be a balance in my life for it to be. How, how, how do you earn it? How do you earn it? Well, for me, because I do have the genetic predisposition to obesity and hypothyroidism and bad circulation and all, everything is stacked against me. So I have to have this balance where I know I need to take care of my health. The 80-20 rule, 80% of the time, I'm eating the healthy food, I'm doing the exercise, I'm getting my sleep, my sunshine, all of that. And then the 20% of the time I have a bit more flexibility, but I usually have a rule like only on this day or whatever um, it is. And that works great for me because what I want for myself is more important than the chocolate, but I do want to be able to enjoy the chocolate. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Sure. It's that, you, say what that's the why like your why has to be strong enough i know what i want for myself but i also know i do want to be able to enjoy chocolate so i, I mean we live in a free society and chocolate can be a lovely thing within reason mm -hmm. and we all make decisions about it's like a continuum from living fast and dying young like the hell's angels do yeah. to um living slow and enjoying the ride. Yeah. And nobody lives on one side or the other all the time. We're all kind of make our own choices and trade-offs along there. And I don't think it's anybody's business to tell us that we can't have a chocolate bar if we really want to have a chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. What I what I think is dangerous are the plausible deniability justifications that go along with food so that people don't really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Like this is a bag of potato chips made with avocado oil and therefore it's healthy for me. No, this is a bag of potato chips. If you're going to eat a bag of potato chips, you're going to eat a bag of potato chips. It's still got all the acrylamides and cancer-causing chemicals. It's still got all of that crap in it. But you know what? Maybe it's a little bit less bad for you. Maybe it's kind of like smacking yourself in the head with the blunt side of the hammer as opposed to the sharp side of the hammer. But you're entitled to do that. You're, you're entitled to trade you know, a little bit of your health for fun if that's what you want to do. And, and everybody does. I, I don't eat perfectly. I, I, you know, people think that I must just um, go around eating dirt and rocks and lettuce. And I, no. I, don't, I don't eat. <laughs> I, I do eat a lot cleaner than most people think is possible because I've been doing this for years and I've discovered that I can discipline myself. And I'm always asking myself, what outcome do I want? How am I going to feel after I eat? And so I, you know, I've, I've evolved to having whole natural plant-based foods and, um, you know, I don't really eat grains and I, I don't have sugar and I, I, I eat really clean. Um, but I'll have non-alcoholic beer once in a while or the beans at a restaurant if it has a little salt in it. Or, I mean, the, the things that I'm talking about sound like a golden boy or something, but, um, but I, I make my choices. I make my trade-offs and I did not start out like that. Like I remember I've been doing this for about 18 years. Um, and so I was, I was managing all sorts of things 18 years ago that I don't manage anymore. Um, and time is another challenge, though. Time is daunting to a lot of people. They think I, they have to lose 100 pounds, 200 pounds. That's going to take forever. Time is very daunting. Or the notion of eating so clean for the rest of my life. Oh, my God. Like, that's daunting to consider things in a time aspect. And I think that's a big part of why people take the easier path as well. Either they give up or they take the drugs or whatever they do. You you can beat the time bugaboo by focusing on the present. I call it your binge free now muscle. Your pig will try to get you all worked up about you can't possibly maintain this for years. And you know, you've got you've got a couple of years to do this to get the weight off. Um you you don't have to go along with that. It's just trying to undermine your confidence. You can say, look, um, the only time that I can eat healthy is the present. If I flex my binge-free now muscle, then my binge-free now muscle or my eat healthy now muscle will get stronger over time, not weaker. So at this hypothetical time in the future that you say I'm going to fall, I'm actually going to be even stronger and less tempted than I am now. But I'm not going to worry about that. I'm only going to worry about the present moment. Mm -hmm. And I, I, never, I never break my rules now. Um, and therefore, I won't ever break them again because the future is a an infinite string of now. So that that's how you beat that. Um, finding the time to 
do what's necessary to eat healthy is a little harder. But when you start to do it, you recognize that you're actually saving time. You're not, you're not wasting time. Like, for example, most people who do well, they do some type of food prep on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they have a bunch of Tupperware. They make some soups and dressings and, you know, cut up some vegetables or something like that. Um, and they, they kind of batch it all together. And then they find they have a lot more time during the week because they're not deciding what they have to eat all week long. And they feel nourished and better able to concentrate because they're never got our regular reliable source of nutrition going through their, their body. So, um, you know, if you spend 90 minutes on a Sunday to prep yourself for the week and you get back five or six hours of productive time during the week that you would have spent overeating and recovering from it and deciding what to eat. Mm -hmm. I think that's much better. This is particularly noticeable when you travel because most people feel especially time pressured when you're traveling, but, but if you're spending thousands of dollars to, you know, go someplace for fun, pleasure, or even business and productivity, don't you deserve to be there and feel confidence in your body and, um, you know, confident in your mind while, while you're there. So I find it works much better to stop at a Whole Foods, for example, before, before I go to my hotel when I'm, yeah when I'm traveling. Yeah. That's usually yeah. the recommendation to people, but also the time that you might feel guilty over what you're eating on your vacation. That's because uh-huh. a lot of people will, they'll say, oh, it's a free for all on vacation, but they don't realize they've spent half of their vacation feeling guilty and not actually enjoying their vacation because of what they're eating. So yeah. exactly. Exactly. It's, it's not worth it. No, there's so much to be considered as we have uncovered. So your new book, was there anything else you wanted to? Bring no, I, th- to? I think we talked about a lot of stuff. So the new book, Defeat Cravings. Defeatyourcravings.com. Is that only for people with cravings or is it for anyone? Like, did you have someone specific in mind when you were designing it? Only overweight people or was it? I mean, because there are some people... There are some people that that are what we would consider slim and healthy, but they still have issues as well. So is it for everyone or only specifics? I I wrote this book um, to expand the audience from my old books, which were largely about binge eating. Mm-hmm. And everybody was saying, well, do I have to have binge eating disorder? And I was saying, well, no, that's only two or 3% of the population, but 40% of the population is obese, according to the World Health Organization. Um, you know, clearly people need help with their eating. And this is a set of tools and techniques that can work for anyone. Um, This is for anyone who finds that they sometimes eat beyond their own best judgment. This is for for anybody who would like to have more control over eating what their higher self says is best. If you're eating what your higher self says is best 100% of the time, then I can't help you. If if you've got that, yeah. No, but if, if you've got an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, and sometimes the devil's winning and you'd like the angel to win a little more often, then, you know, the, the book is free for Kindle. You can get it at thefeaturecravings.com. Oh. Um, so, you know, you don't really have much to lose. And um, yeah, so yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's for everyone. I do. Yeah, I would agree because we, I think nearly ever, I don't really know anyone who's a hundred percent. Everyone has this good evil on one side or the other. So we've all got challenges. We just may not think they're as bad as the next person, like you said, because, oh, I don't binge. Maybe there is something there that you're doing that you could probably kind of need a little bit of help with. Yeah, definitely. Well, so, okay, everyone, this book is Defeat Your Cravings. So you can go, like Dr. Glenn said, defeatyourcravings.com, and you can also avail of the free book on Kindle. Um, One last kind of line or piece of wisdom you'd like to leave people with that are maybe struggling with their eating? Um, Start with one simple rule. Start start simple. Mm. What's something that you could and would do that wouldn't be too burdensome, but would really signal you that you're going in the right direction. So start um, with that win factor, get a small win and then build on those wins even. Yeah, but but it's particularly hard for people to imagine doing that and how much of an impact that's going to have. Because most people feel desperate to lose the weight 
most most people live by the you know dictum that when they're good they're very very good but when they're bad they're horrid so starting slowly is really hard for most people but it's a key component and a key foundation for success yeah well yeah. glenn it's been a pleasure again thank you for your time maybe we'll do a fourth one in a couple of whenever you want i'm always here Thank you for your time. I hope you have a wonderful time on the beach today. We're prepping for snow, so... Um, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, thank you as always, Glenn. I'm sure everyone's going to love this. Enjoy your day. Thanks. I'll see you.